Welcome back to the Corporate Escapee Podcast. I'm your host, Brett Trainer. Today's guest is Nancy Harhut. Nancy is a fellow corporate escapee who is the author of a fantastic new book, Using Behavioral Science and Marketing, and if I might add, in life, which we'll talk about a little bit. She's also the co-founder of HBT Marketing Agency, and by the way, has been named a top 40 digital strategist, an ad club top 100 creative influencer, a social top 50 email marketing leader, and one of the 10 most fascinating people in B2B marketing. And if that's not enough, Nancy is also an international speaker, including this prestigious South by Southwest. Basically, the bottom line is Nancy is very good at getting people to take action by blending creative with decision science to prompt response, which is what we're all trying to do, right? So with that, welcome to the podcast, Nancy. And did I miss anything? <laughs> no, you packed a lot in. Thank you so much. That was an awesome uh, introduction. And thank you for having me. Happy to be here, Brett. Oh, no, it's definitely my pleasure. And we're definitely going to spend uh, the majority of the time on the book and the learnings from the book and your work with clients, because I'm absolutely fascinated with with behavioral science and how people just in general act. And again, anything, any advantage I can get as maybe not a, as a business owner versus a marketer, I'm, I'm excited to dive into. But I do need to ask you about your escape from corporate and, you know, what was the what pushed you to, to make the jump? And let's start there. <laughs> sure, sure. Well, what pushed me to make the jump, it was it was more like the mama bird kind of nudging the little baby bird out of the nest. It wasn't so much of a jump as it was a, a bit of a, you know, a, a, a push, I suppose. Um, but, you know, I'd been working in um, in agencies and um, in, in a- advertising agency life. When you get to be a woman of a certain age, it's simply a fact that uh, there are fewer positions for you and you're just a little bit less sought after. And uh, the agency that I was working at was actually owned by a larger firm that was what well, was it was a printing company basically and uh, they decided to double down on printing and just uh, get out of the agency world and so that kind of pulled the rug out from under me and yeah, I was like okay now what do I do and the gentleman who was the president of the agency said to me Nancy you know we've got clients who really like the work that we were doing we're you know we're we're doing something that's different than a lot of other agencies and that we're, we're blending behavioral science with marketing best practices. What do you say we just hang out our own shingle? And uh, I was like, I don't know. I don't think I've ever really wanted to do that. I've always been, you know, within the corporate enclave and, and that's, you know, that's worked very well for me. But he was like, you know, we've got, you know, there's a market out there. We've, you know, we've got this, this market out there that we can really service. You like what you do. I think we can do this. So I took the leap with him and uh, never looked back. It's been five and a half, six years now, and it's it's worked out really well. But, you know, it, it probably was that uh, that was the impetus. If, if it were up to me, I don't know if I ever would have said, yeah, I think I'm tired of this. I'm going to, you know, go off on my own instead. But it's worked out really well. So when did you get into behavioral science and how did you come up with the idea for the book? Yeah. So my degree is in journalism. And uh, as I as I went into my senior year of college, it became very apparent to me that while I would be a good journalist, I wasn't going to be like a great journalist. Like I looked around at my peers and they had a fire in their belly that I just didn't have. What I liked to write wasn't the, you know, gee, your house just burned down. How do you feel about that, Mr. Trainer story? <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. I just didn't have that in me. I like to write other kinds of things. So I scrambled in my senior year and I took uh, advertising classes and corporate communications classes and PR classes and uh, kind of rounded out, you know, the different ways one could make a living as a, as a writer and uh, found a, you know, found a job at Mullen Advertising. That was my first job out of college. I was in their PR department. And then from there, I, 
I ended up going into um, a marketing agency that later became Digitas. And so that kind of uh, launched my career in marketing, loved it, you know, found my home and, and never really strayed. Uh, so, so that was that. And then, um, gee, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, I read Robert Cialdini's book, Influence, The Science of Persuasion. And uh, I think like a lot of people, that was like just an eye-opening book. And that sent me down the rabbit hole. And I started to read anything I could get my hands on, you know, Dan Ariely and uh, Sunstein and Thaler, you know, wh whatever I could find, uh, Roger Dooley, just all about how to use brain science. And, you know, I'd be reading these books and I'd be, you know, making margin notes as I thought about the particular challenge that I was working on for my various clients. You know, maybe one was selling newspaper subscriptions, maybe another was selling insurance, you know, but I was kind of, you know, I could try this, I could try this. Started to, you know, apply some of these tactics because my background is marketing. I'm not a uh, academic. I'm not a researcher. Uh, I don't have a degree in behavioral science, but I started to, you know, take everything I was learning filter it through the lens of marketing, apply it, and it started to work. And, you know, the more it worked, the more I used it. I started to talk to clients about it. They were like, yeah, just keep doing that. You know, no one else, no other, no other, other agencies really talking to us about that. We, you know, we like what you're saying and we really love the results that you're getting. So I just started to do more and more and more of it. And, um, you know, uh, finally just kind of uh, at the last agency that I worked at, the one that ended up uh, getting out of the agency business, that's where uh, we decided all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to hang, you know, our hat on this and say that this is what this agency represents. And then, you know, when that closed down, my business partner and I just continued with that same approach. Uh, like I said, clients like it. We see that it works and there's really, you know, no reason to abandon it. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to beat science, right? I mean, the fact is that this stuff worked and what I, what I really loved about the book, well, when I first, when I first got it, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is like a textbook. Am I going to be able to get through all these things? But then once I started reading it, the way you laid it out with, you know, kind of the concept, the case studies around it, which were really helpful. And then the key takeaways just made it easier. And so as I started reading the book, and that's what I want to get into because could literally talk about this probably for two hours to really dig into everything was everything builds off of it. I think you kind of let off with, you know, eight ways to inject emotion into marketing and messaging. Well, makes sense. But then as you started to detail what those eight were, like loss aversion, scarcity, reciprocity, I'm like, God, that makes sense. That makes sense. I'm like, no, how in the world do I put all these things together? Because I don't know, there's probably more people like me where I perfectionist, not the right word. But when I do work, you know, I had a former management consulting colleague used to tell me all the time, Brett, done is better than perfect. And I'm starting to read these things. I'm like, man, do I need to move my messages across all of these things? Um, anyway, it, it was phenomenal. I almost needed a cheat sheet to go back. So with that is the context. And for maybe non-marketers, you know, how, how what's the best way to get started and, and think about this? And maybe the top three or four things that we should be thinking about as we get going. So thanks for your kind words about the book, by the way. You know, it's funny. Uh, it is it's 17 chapters, 288 pages, and science is in the title. So, you know, some people might be like, uh, not interested, you know, eyes roll back in the head, science. Um, but it's it really is kind of short on science, if you will, and uh, much more actionable, practical tips that uh, that someone can just immediately apply, and they're easy to use. And to your point, I you know, I talk about ways to use them, tips to use them, mini caselets, you know, mini case studies, caselets of, of how they've been applied, and um, 
then a little bit about the science so that, uh, you know, it's not just Nancy's opinion. It's not just some creative person who, you know, likes this turn of phrase or, or this, you know, image, but it's really rooted in science. And so there's evidence-based reasons why you should, you know, why you should try to apply these. And so the whole idea of, of behavioral science, and when we talk about behavioral science, what we're really talking about is that um, scientists have studied how people make decisions. And what they found is very often people don't make these well-thought-out, well-considered decisions. Marketers think that they do. We ourselves think that we do. We think that we you know, have a reason for everything that we do. But the truth of the matter is there's very often other factors that are at play that influence our decisions. And frequently we're not aware of them. But you know, we think we know why we're doing something, but there are other things at play that can you know, nudge us or prompt us in, in one direction or another. And so when someone who does marketing, and that could be a marketer, or it could be someone who's, you know, got a business and marketing is one of the many things on their to-do list, but someone who's doing marketing, you know, when they hear that, they might think, you got to be kidding me, Nancy. Like, I'm trying so hard to get the right message to the right person at the right time. And, and you're telling me that, you know, there are other factors at play that influence them that so that they're not making these well thought out, well considered decisions. Like I'm giving them all the right reasons and that might not be the reason they buy. And so that can be a little disheartening, but once you understand this, you realize it can actually be the keys to the kingdom, because if you understand the decision-making shortcuts that people rely on, that they routinely default to, you can make sure that you kind of bake them into your marketing executions, your, you know, your, your emails, your ads, your direct mail letters, your blog posts, whatever, uh, to nudge or prompt these decisions so that it increases the likelihood people will do what you want them to do. So for example, behavioral scientists have uh, identified something called autonomy bias. And what they found is people have this very deep-seated desire to exert some kind of control over themselves and their environments, right? Essentially, we don't like to be told what to do. So, you know, as I say that, Brett, you might be like, well, okay, yeah, that makes sense. I, you know, that's not really earth-shattering. I don't like to be told what to do. Why would other people like to be told what to do? But it's, it's really, really deep-seated that we do not like to be told what to do, that we want to have some kind of control. So researchers actually ran a study, and they ran it in a nursing home, and there was the control group of people and there's a test group of people. So the test group of people could choose which plant they wanted to grow in the room and which movies they wanted to watch. And the control group were given a plant to grow and, and to care for and given some movies to watch. And then 18 months later, the researchers found that the people in the control group died at twice the rate as the people in the test. So the people in the test group had just a choice of which plant to grow and which movies to watch. And that little bit of autonomy, they believe, helped keep them alive. So really, won. what does all, all of us have to do with marketing? Well, it means that giving people choices can influence the decisions they make. So uh, researchers at Tulane University found that if you give somebody a choice, you can nearly quadruple the likelihood that they'll make a buying decision in the moment. You know, uh, you know, you said you were in the consulting world, but, you know, you put a proposal in front of a client. Here it is, right? If you give them two flavors, so they suddenly go from, you know, do I or do I not want this particular proposal? Maybe I better sleep on it. Maybe I should compare it with another vendor. You know, they go instead to which of these two am I going to choose? Right. If there's only one, you know, there's nothing to compare it to. There's no context. And so, you know, well, we got to do some research when there's two. We just skip right over that. And it's like, all right, which of these two do I want? It's almost a foregone conclusion that we're going to choose one of them. So autonomy bias can be a really powerful tool for marketers in that if we give people choices or if we remind them that they're the ones in control, there's a phrase. It's called the BYAF technique, which stands for but you are free. So, Brett, I could tell you what I want you to do, you know, describe my product or service, you know, tell you I think it would be great for you, ask you to buy it. And then at the end, 
and this is going to seem counterintuitive, I can say, but you are free to choose, but the choice is yours, but it's up to you. And that researchers have found can double the likelihood people will do what you want really? them to do. Pretty incredible. Yeah, I've, I've always kind of heard that, right? You want the, the client to come to the decision on their own. You want to influence and lead them. But ultimately, I mean, this makes perfect sense now that you're saying that. The, the other one that was, was super interesting, and maybe it was because I was reading the chapter it was unfolding, was on scarcity right? That people buy, and I'll give you an example and you can tell me if this, this is one of the things, but out here, those little target selling those little shopping carts. I mean, it can't be much more than this, but my wife, we don't have little kids anymore. We may have grandkids down the line. She literally drove 20 miles to go pick a, find one of these target shopping carts just because you can't find them local and we just may need it three years from now. So I'm, after I read that, I'm like, is that scarcity? There's probably a whole bunch of those tied into that, but that's the one that jumped out to me on that. Yeah, no, and you're absolutely right. That's scarcity. It, you know, if on every street corner, every store had one of those, you know, you might be like, oh, it's cute, you know, but we don't have grandkids yet. You know, I'll, I'll get one, you know, when the time is right, you know, but because they're hard to get, that increases their value. You know, if something is readily available, you know, we may or may not want it. If we want it, we grab it. If we don't, we're like, okay, you know, maybe later, maybe never, you know, but you just let people know that that something isn't going to be available for a long time, or it's only available to certain people. You know, maybe it's only available to, uh, you know, members of the loyalty program at Target, or it's only available to, you know, people who can prove they live in Chicago or whatever it happens to be, you know, like if, if yeah. it's only available to certain people, that can make it more valuable. It's like, oh, well, if not everyone can get it, I want to have it. You know, we all like to have products and services or information or access to things that not everyone else has. You know, it makes us feel special. You know, we were the first ones to try this or we have something other people don't. And the other way that scarcity works, though, is if you can say that you have information that's not widely available, it tends to be that people believe it more, that they're more persuaded by it. If, you know, if People think, oh, that's common knowledge. It's like, eh. But if you say that, you know, this is a little known secret, that this is an insider tip that, you know, somebody is going to reveal or give you a sneak peek or a look behind the curtain, you know, if you think you've got a hot tip, people have a tendency to believe it more. You know, we, we value scarcity. And so scarce information is also something that's valued. It's, you know, it's why if you were, um, if you were someone who liked to bet at the horse track or something and, you know, yeah. you knew someone who knew someone who knew someone who knew the jockey and passed this tip on up to you, you'd be like, oh, I've got information not everyone else has. You know, this is going to be the thing that does it. But, uh, you know, we used it once for one of our clients. We were trying to convince people to save more in their uh 401k plans, their work retirement plans. We tried, you know, a number of different ideas, but one of them was, uh, this is a little known secret about how to save more for retirement. And, you know, people really engage with That's that. You know, it's like, oh, okay, not everyone knows this. It's a secret. So, it's, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's good to keep in mind as we serve up our marketing messages that a little tweak like that, you know, instead of saying this is something you should know, you know, to say this is a little known secret can make a big difference. Yeah, that's interesting. It, it makes sense. Now you're saying, like, how oh, those headlines do jump out at me when I see it. And even going maybe in the same vein as that, the loss aversion versus gain was, I'm like, I had to read that twice. I'm like, is that is that true? Can you explain a little bit about the power of loss aversion in people's, I don't know, psyche or, or brains versus gains and how we potentially could use that one? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, it's almost counterintuitive for a marketer, right? So the idea of loss aversion is that we are more motivated to avoid the pain of loss 
than we are to achieve the pleasure of gain. In fact, we're twice as motivated to avoid the pain of loss as we are to achieve the pleasure of gain. But in marketing, what do we do? We have a tendency to double down on, on the gains, the advantages, the benefits, right? And, and we know that they work. We know that a marketing works. And, uh, you know, Brett, I wouldn't want any of your listeners to say, yeah, I listened to the podcast and Nancy said we don't need benefits. So that's not what I'm saying. You know, we <laughs> right. definitely want the benefits, but a little well-placed loss aversion can go a long way. It's not just about the benefits, but it's about the pain you can avoid if you do what I'm asking you to do, or the pain you may find yourself in if you fail to do what I'm asking you to do. Alan Rosenspan, who is a uh, fabulous marketer, he's one of my mentors, and he was one of my early creative directors. He actually tested something for a client. The client was selling ISO certifications, and he had two lines that he tested head to head. ISO certification, will your company pass? And of course, if you hired the, his client, that's what would happen. You know, they were going to help you, you know, get certified. ISO certification, will your company pass? ISO certification, will your company fail? Well, he told me that fail won hands down, right? We're, even though the goal was to be able to pass, right? Um, the idea of avoiding the pain of failing was what was more motivating. We're, we're twice as motivated to avoid that, uh, you know, that pain of loss. So sometimes instead of saying take advantage of, we can say don't miss out on, you know, but just these little like uh, small changes that can make a big difference. Uh, you know, instead of saying save, you can say you'll pay more tomorrow, you know, if you, you know, if you don't buy today, you're gonna have to pay more tomorrow. And we all like to save, but I think what we like even more is knowing that we didn't get taken, you know, that we didn't pay more right. for something that the person next to us paid less for, right? So there are really powerful ways to use loss aversion. Yeah, it's good. I, and I don't use that at all. So I've started thinking about how do I start to incorporate some of those things and kind of ties into the next example that really jumped out at me was your um, the story of the Wall Street Journal. Right, the two corporate workers and the one that read the Wall Street Journal and the one that didn't. Can you share a little bit about that? I would love that story. And that was it was amazing. It was um it was a subscription letter. So it was the Wall Street Journal. They were sending out direct mail trying to get people to to subscribe. It was written by a guy named Taylor Conroy, who was a freelancer, and it it ran as the control for 28 years, which is to say it was it was the thing that worked the best. Nothing could beat it. You know, when they would send out other letters, but no other letter beat this one for 28 years. It, it, it was attributed to, um, I think, raising $2 billion in subscription dollars for them, which is pretty amazing. But what it did is it told a story, it told the story of these two guys that, you know, uh, kind of grew up in the same town, graduated from the same school, and ended up working at the same company. And they show up at their, you know, 25th reunion or something. And it turns out that they both work at the same company, but one of them is now, you know, the president and the other one is still kind of a mid-level manager. And so they're, you know, they're telling you the story and you're maybe three, four paragraphs in. And now they tell you that, uh, you know, one of them read the Wall Street Journal, the one who's the president, and the other one didn't. That was one of the differences. And then, you know, it continues on. So you're three or four paragraphs in before they even introduce the Wall Street Journal. And as you're reading the story, they never explicitly say, well, the guy who's the president is president because he read the Wall Street Journal. But they let you come to that conclusion on your own. You know, you're reading it and you're like, okay, they went to the same school, they work at the same company, they were they were both, you know, smart, above average, achieving guys, and yet one of them is still, you know, in the mid-level and one of them is the president. And you're like, ah, I see the difference. The difference is the president guy, he read the Wall Street Journal. So you come to your own conclusion. And that's the wonderful thing about stories, because stories allow you to draw your own conclusion. And while you may argue with what someone else tells you, like a marketer, you rarely argue with your own conclusion. So if you can create a story, the right story, tell that story to people, 
you just kind of bring them right down the path that you know that you want them to follow and, and they come to their own conclusion. Stories are also good because they involve more parts of the brain too. And the more parts of your brain that are involved, the better you understand something and the longer you remember it. So that's another bonus to stories, but really powerful work for the Wall Street Journal there. Yeah. And the thing I love about that is you can see where it's starting to stack a lot of your concepts into it, right? Because there's a little bit of loss aversion because you're showing what if you don't read the Wall Street Journal, what's going to happen, right? The uh, storytelling for sure. And again, that's where I'm, I'm working to, to to get better. But it's literally, you know, what we're starting to talk about, I think, is just the small changes you can make one word or phrase over another one. You know, certain ones are more powerful. Others, you know, are, you know, are, are OK, but they're not quite as powerful. And, you know, I said, instead of say, take advantage, try, uh, don't miss out on. So it's some research that uh, was conducted by a woman named Ellen Langer from Harvard University. And what she did is she identified the word because as an automatic compliance trigger. When we see or hear the word because, we just start to agree. We start to nod uh, and comply, if you will, without fully processing what comes next. Before we've even read what comes after the word because, or before we've even heard what comes after that word because, we just start to nod like little bobbleheads. We start to agree because we just assume whatever's coming next is a good legitimate reason. So she ran this experiment. There are a bunch of people that were lined up to use a photocopier. And she sent someone to the head of the line and she instructed that person to say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you? And 60, 60, 60 percent of the time, the person was allowed to cut. But then she repeats the experiment, sends someone to the head of the line and instructs them to say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you because I'm in a hurry and I have some copies to make? Well, here the 60 percent number shoots up to 94 percent. And Brett, as I tell you the story, you might say, well, Nancy, they said they were in a hurry. But Langer repeats the experiment a third and final time, sends someone to the head of the line and instructs them to say, excuse me, can I cut in front of you because I have some copies to make? Well, here, the 94% number drops to 93%, statistically insignificant, Amazing. right? That the yeah. same huge lift over that 60. Now think about it. Everybody standing in that line was standing in that line because they <laughs> copies to make, right? You don't stand in line at the uh, Xerox machine to get a Starbucks. It doesn't work that way, right? So- she identified the word because as an automatic compliance trigger. When, when we see her here, we just get into this agreeable mindset. We're like, all right, whatever that is coming next is a good legitimate reason. So I'm just going to say yes. I'm just going to agree. So from from a marketing perspective, you know what this means is people are more likely to do what we ask them to do if we give them a reason why. And the reason why doesn't necessarily have to be this fabulous, like you know, ironclad, bulletproof reason. It just has to be a reason. Now, to be fair. When uh, when she continued out with the experiment, and I think the person had you know many 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 copies to make, fewer people allowed her to cut or allowed the the person to cut. I don't know if it was a woman or a man, um, but you know if you came in with this big stack, it, it forced you to maybe be a little bit more in the present and go wait a minute, you know. But when she you know yeah I've got a few copies to make, can I cut in front of you? You know it's it's pretty amazing. So what it says to us as marketers is include that reason why. You know we think we should we think you should sign up for this because you'll like it. Uh, you know, we think you should do this because it'll make your life easier, you know, uh, because a lot of people like you have done this, you know, kind of a little bit of social proof in there, too. But, you know, just it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, sign up for this new service because it'll make you a millionaire. That'd be a great reason to give. But you, very few people, <laughs> if any, can say that. Right. You know, but, you know, sign up for this because you'll find it helpful. Sign up for this because a lot of people like you find it beneficial. Just having that reason why when people get to the because it puts them in an agreeable uh, mindset. Yeah, I'm curious. Just kind of a follow up as I was when I was reading that, I was thinking about wow, only one percent difference with a, a it was a reason, but maybe not a valid reason. I'm just wondering if we applied that same 
within our businesses that maybe that creates some remorse after the fact. They're like, wow, maybe I shouldn't have let that person cut. It wasn't a very good reason. So I'm guessing the better the reason, the better the long term the person feels about letting you cut. Is that, is that fair? I, you know, I as a marketer, I would say that. I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, you know, saying because is a is a, a very powerful word, but I wouldn't suggest that marketers say, uh, you know, you should buy my product because I said so. I mean, that would be like, all right, you're using it, but it, that's not really a great reason. You know, I also wouldn't suggest that, that marketers lie and say, oh, you know, because it's the best one you're going to find when they know it's not the best one, you know. Um, and I, I think, uh, you know, I think what you're saying is true. If you're if we overpromise and people, you know, kind of follow through, make the purchase, there could be buyer's regret, you know, it's their buyer's remorse. It's like, oh, why did I, why did I do that? You know, now the interesting thing is when we try to think about why we did what we did, we probably won't circle back and say, oh, because of the reason why, you know, we will tell ourselves that we bought it because it was on sale or because it was well recommended or, you know, now if those happen to be the reasons that the marketer gave, okay, great. But if the marketer gave some other reason and it turned out not to be true, we may not even be conscious of the fact that that was why we did it because we have a tendency to make decisions for emotional reasons and then justify them later with the rational reasons. So, um, you know, if we, if the reason we gave as a marketer had to do with how somebody might feel, um, you know, Later on, the, the target might not say, well, I bought it because I thought I would feel this way. They would say, I bought it because I thought it it was priced right or the car had right. good gas mileage or, you know, the, the book was endorsed by someone I respected, you know. We can rationalize just about anything, can't we? <laughs> yes, you're absolutely right. <laughs> you don't mind if we hit a couple more of these, do you? I think uh, Not at I all. The one, the Christmas card experiment. Again, fascinated. And if I'm going, this is going back from memory, but... Basically, the experiment was they sent Christmas cards to folks that had no idea who they were. And in return, they got, I won't spoil it. Tell me, because again, it's just, the, the, I think this was the principle of reciprocity, right? You do something nice for somebody or give value to your customers, they're going to feel more of a sense to, to reciprocate. So I think this was a, a pretty powerful one. Yeah, yeah, no, it absolutely was fascinating. It took place in Chicago, by the way, which is where you are, right? So just yes, a yes, yes. Side note there, but um, researcher named um, Philip Kuntz. Uh, what he did is he went through, I think, a, a Chicago phone book, pulled names out at random, and sent these people Christmas cards. And what happened was over twenty percent of the people sent him a card back. Right? They had no idea who he was, but it didn't make a difference. It's like you know, you get this card, and you're like, you know honey, do we know the Philip Kuntz family? It's like, no, I don't know. Neither do I, but well, they sent us a card. So what do you do, right? Like human beings are hardwired to, you know, to try to get along, to be civil, to, you know, to be cooperative. And it's like, so the nice thing to do is you send a card back. I don't know who he is, but we'll send a card back. He said he got cards for years afterwards from some of these strangers. And some of them would even include little notes like, oh, you know, here's the update on the family. You know, uh, little Susie uh, was prom queen and, you know, and little Johnny just hit his first home run or what, you know, I mean, they would like do these like like family updates to this guy that they didn't even know, you know, but it that's the power of reciprocity. When somebody does something for you, you like to answer in kind. So if if we went out for lunch and, and you picked up the tab, I would say to myself, the next time I'm out for lunch with Brett, I have to pick up the tab. You know, if you sent me a birthday card, if you're like, I got to remember to send you a birthday card. We like to answer in kind what someone has done. And from a marketing perspective, what that means is we should practice give to get. So if, if we're the first to give, what it does is it puts our recipients in the mindset of wanting to return the favor, wanting to even the score, wanting to not feel obliged, right? So in this, you know, this is true, even if 
we give someone something that they didn't particularly ask for. You know, once you're in receipt of something, whether or not you asked for it, once you're in receipt of it, you feel like, oh, now I, you know, I'd like to return the favor. I kind of owe them, you know. So, um, so it means, you know, from a marketing perspective, giving free trials or giving surprise gifts or uh, making information available, having a you know, library of how-to videos. These are all great, great ways to kind of uh, to practice reciprocity because people are benefiting from what it is you're offering, and then you know they're going to feel when the time is right that they should return the favor. Yeah, and I've heard I can't remember where I've heard it too. Maybe Gary Vee talks about give, give, give. But it was I heard somewhere else that the longer that you can give, I'm more in a marketing and a business perspective. The more you longer you can give, the greater the the return will become when that when that time comes, right? Yeah. Well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I recommend to my clients that they, you know, they have undated content, like they make content available. You know, I'm a big believer in a, you know, a free sample or a, you know, a limited time trial because it allows people to experience the product or the service and you know, it does trigger the idea of reciprocity. It also triggers the idea of consistency. Once you start, you know, to use something, you don't like to abandon it, you know, so if you start to get right. used to it, you're just going to continue with it. But, um, you know, do, do I suggest that um, the only reason you should be doing it is so that you can get a return? Um, well, no, I mean, it's, it's definitely a marketing tactic, but, uh, you know, but you should, you know, you should use it judiciously. Well, one of our clients actually did something that I thought was kind of counterintuitive, but it really paid off. They they ended up using the reciprocity principle. They were a, a large financial services firm, and they dealt with uh, financial advisors who sold their funds among other people's funds, right? And 12, 12 months or more ago, a group of financial advisors had stopped selling their funds. And uh, what they wanted to do is they wanted to kind of re-engage them. And, you know, they tried to email and call them, and they, they just weren't getting any response. So we ended up using a give-to-get approach. We sent an email uh, from the wholesaler that said, hey, watch your USPS mail because there's a gift I've picked out, especially for you. It'll be arriving in a day or two. A day or two later, this white box shows up inside the box is a framed New Yorker cartoon. Uh, it's, you know, about some little kid going around the neighborhood selling life insurance. It, you know, if you're in financial services as a financial advisor, you would chuckle. It was cute. And <laughs> it had your name in, in it. So mine would have my name in the caption. Yours would have your name in the caption. So it's this framed New Yorker cartoon with your name in the caption. And then a note from the wholesaler saying, hey, I've been trying to get in touch. You know, would love to, to uh, catch up, to connect. And uh, what happened was not only did they re-engage a huge number of financial advisors who had stopped working with them for over a year, they actually ended up generating $68 million in incremental really? revenue from this okay. particular promotion. So, uh, you know, it, it absolutely works. It's, I think it's one strategy, you know, one tactic that marketers have available to them. And, uh, you know, and the truth is you can't just keep giving away stuff and not getting a return. That's not a, a solid strategy, you know, but, <laughs> but, you know, you use it. And, and uh, when you see that it works, it makes sense. You know, one could say, why would you spend your money rewarding people for the wrong behavior? If you're going to give it, excuse me, give a gift. Why not give a gift to the people who, you know, who are selling your funds? And there's logic to that. There's no question about that. You know, reinforcing sure. positive behavior is good. But in this particular case, it was just what this client needed to re-engage those financial advisors. Yeah, no, it makes sense. And again, you should be wanting to give value anyway. I guess it was my, it was where I was thinking is don't do it just expecting something. Give expecting nothing thereof, I think, is the better approach. And you will get back just because of the human nature of it. So, all right, I promise just two more because I think these are interesting from from business perspective. They all are. But the uh, the commitment consistency kind of resonated with me because when I was thinking about that, 
because there's a number of times if we're starting a new business, we don't have a bunch of referenceable clients or not a place that we've done it. But if you kind of align yourself with shared values, and again, I'm putting words in your mouth, so tell me if I misread this, the approach is a way to connect with folks and get people interested, even if you don't necessarily have the long track history. Did, did I interpret that? that principle correctly? <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> what you want to do is, um, yes, you want to, you know, you want to align with, with shared values and you also want to um, just get that first yes. Um, because what behavioral scientists have found is once people make a decision or take a stand, they like to remain consistent when future opportunities arise and they generally do so giving the matter at hand little to no thought. So it goes back to this idea of decision-making shortcuts, of conserving mental energy. It's like, if I've already, you know, vetted this company, if I've already decided, you know, they're okay, I don't need to go through that process again. I can free up some, you know, some brain power. So if you can get someone to say yes once, you're much more likely to get them to say yes a second time, a third time, a fourth time. And this is particularly true if your first ask is relatively small, and even more so if it's public, but, but it doesn't have to be public. But what this means is, you know, maybe the, the right approach isn't to just come out guns blazing and try to close the deal, try to make the sale right away. Maybe in some cases, what makes sense is to just get that first small yes. So get someone to like you on Facebook or listen to your uh, your podcast or your webinar or download your cheat sheet or, you know, watch one of your videos, one of your how to videos. But, you know, the, you know, or enter a contest that you're that you're running. But you start small. You get that first yes. Maybe it's, you know, taking the free sample or the free trial. You take that first yes and then you can start to build on it and get subsequent yeses because someone said yes once the first time and it's like, oh yeah. And the next time you reach out to them, they're like, oh, right. You know, I know those people, I do business with them. So they're, you know, they're more likely to engage with your message. And if they say yes the first time, they're much more likely to say yes the second time. Researchers actually went out to a neighborhood in LA and asked people if they would put up a, well, first they asked them if they, uh, how they felt about safe driving. And people said, oh, I, I'm in favor of it. Kind of hard not to be in favor of safe driving. And then they said, how about putting up a billboard? And people were like, a billboard? What's it going to do to my, my property value, my view? What are my neighbors going to think? So very few people said yes to the billboard, right? Um, only 17% of them said yes to the billboard. But in that 17%, there was a subgroup of 76% um, who, you know, had, uh, who were like, yes, I'm all in on this billboard. And the reason they were is a couple of weeks before they'd agreed to display a small two inch by two inch sign saying that they supported safe driving. So when the researchers came back and they were different researchers, but when researchers came back a couple of you know weeks later and asked about the billboard for those people, they were being consistent with their previous behavior, uh, consistent with uh, the values that they espouse. You know, they saw themselves as people who took a stand and supported safe driving. They saw themselves as someone who, you know, displayed, uh, you know, uh, you know, uh, an indicator saying that that's what they did, whether it was a small sign or now a big billboard. So it was, you know, 76% of that group were just, you know, kind of following the, the commitment and consistency principle. So it can be very, very powerful. It's, it's, again, we're on autopilot. You get that first yes. And it's, uh, you know, it's not that much harder to get the second, the third, the fourth. Interesting. Yeah. I know that's, that can be a sales tactic, right? They teach that in sales classes. Sometimes if you're a prospect and you get to the first yes, but then they abuse it and it's just <laughs> the good ones never do, right? Good salespeople just know how to connect with people and, and apply this. So, all right. Last one, I promise. And what I again found interesting was the rhyme and reason effect, right? And a couple of these woes unite foes and the other one that made me laugh a little bit was keep your P between one and three. And you're going to have to explain that one. So the listeners know what we're talking about, but again, just a rhyming concept that 
when you when I read it, I'm like, God, that just makes sense. So yeah. <laughs> maybe we can. Well, this I mean, is a good one to end uh, this part on. How's that? Sure. Well, I mean, it's it's funny. A lot of these, you know, you, you know, some of these you read and you're like, wow, I, you know, I never really thought of that. Others you read and you're like, that makes total sense. Or oh my gosh, I, you know, I've done that, or that, you know, that, you know, I've I've done that before, or I've uh, I've reacted to that, you know. So some of them you're like, oh yeah, and others you're like, oh interesting. But in this particular case, what researchers have found is people um, not only are more likely to remember phrases that rhyme, they find them to be more truthful and more accurate. So it's, it's called the rhyme is reason effect. And you, know, you can have two sentences, uh, woes unite foes, woes unite enemies. They both convey the same information, uh, but one of them rhymes and, and one of them doesn't. And people have a tendency to believe the rhyming phrase. They think of it as the more truthful, the more accurate representation. And the reason why is it's easier for the human brain to process phrases that rhyme. And if it's sure. easier for the brain to process something, it feels right. And if something feels right, it's not a big leap to assume that it is right. And so when something rhymes, not only is it more memorable, but we have a tendency to, to also find it more believable. And so uh, in the book, I quoted something that Ogilvy and Mather did uh, over in the UK. During the pandemic, they were dealing with the personnel in, in field hospitals, I think. And uh, there was a, an issue with um, a lot of them getting dehydrated. You know, they were so busy racing around doing so much that they weren't stopping to to hydrate. Right. And that was a real issue. And so they... Um, they constructed these, I think, posters that they put up, and they kind of showed a, a color grade of um, of the of the different shades that uh, your your pee could be, <laughs> and uh, and you know, and the the proper shade was between one and three, and if it was not between one and three, it meant that you needed to drink more water. And so they said, you know, keep your pee between one and three, and <clears throat> it was just a reminder that uh, people needed to to hydrate. You know, that these medical personnel needed to just take a few minutes to you know have something to drink to stay hydrated because that would make them, uh, you know, that would allow them to be good at what they do, because if you're dehydrated, you're not going to be making the best business decisions, the best medical decisions, you know, the best personal decisions. So, uh, so it was an interesting example. But, you know, there are others when you think about uh, campaign slogans or taglines, you know, nationwide is on your side, yeah. arguably, that's better than, you know, nationwide has your back, right? It, it's rhyming, it's pithy, it's memorable, and we have a tendency to believe it more. So, hey, that's a win, right? It's a win-win. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. And I'm like, God, why didn't I think of that? Right. All these things, it just, like you said, it, it, it they all add and make sense. And like I said, I'm starting to find myself now as I look at my messaging, just kind of going through the, the check boxes of this to say, does this make sense? Am I leveraging? Because again, if you're going to do it, you might as well give yourself, you know, your best chance of it being successful based on science. That's what I, you know, I love about this. So, all right. So I know I've been asking you a ton of questions. Is there any, anything else that, you know, either, I guess there's a ton more in the book, but is there anything else big that you think we missed that you, you think we should touch on in, in this episode? And uh, No, I mean, you, you, you've been an awesome host. Thank you. I mean, I think that, you know, the one thought I would leave listeners with is, um, you know, it, it, like I said, behavioral science and marketing, you think, oh my gosh, you know, is this going to be, you know, heavy and hard to get through? And uh, the, the truth is it's not. It's, you know, it's, it's a quick, easy read. It's filled with actionable, practical tactics. And, uh, you know, as you're saying, right, if you're going to put the marketing message out there anyway, why not do it in a way that's going to be the most effective? You know, you've got the right message to the right person at the right time. Serve it up in the right way, the way that is more likely that the human brain will notice it, understand it, remember it, and respond to it. And that's what these tactics will help you do. They're 
They're practical. They're easy to apply. They don't require, you know, going out and, and investing more money in your MarTech stack or, you know, spending a lot of time or, or, or money trying to, you know, to, to acquire something. There's, you know, you can dip in and out of the book. It's filled with, you know, with easy to access practical tips. And uh, you don't have to read it in, in order. If you don't want to, you can pop into a particular chapter like, oh, my, my problem is X. This is how I'm going to be able to, you know, uh, test different ways to solve it. So um, I just, I really encourage it. I've seen double and triple digit lifts for my clients over their benchmarks and over their controls. I've seen how effective this is. You know, the truth is there's no magic bullet. There's no magic wand that will, you know, get everyone to do everything that we want them to. But this will increase the likelihood that people will uh, respond to your marketing messages and, and behave the way you want them to behave. So it's absolutely worth incorporating in, into your marketing arsenal. Awesome, Nancy. Well, thank you so much for spending the time and again, educating me and uh, the audience for sure. And, uh, you know, best continued success. Like I said, I'm sure your agency is absolutely killing it and will continue to do so because it's based in science. So well, thank you very much. I, again, totally enjoyed speaking with you. Really appreciate the opportunity to be on the podcast. Thank you. <laughs>